Welcome to Hub History, where we go far beyond the Freedom Trail to share our favorite stories from the history of Boston, the hub of the universe. This is episode 153, The Snow Hurricane. Hi, I'm Jake. This week, we're talking about a severe storm that hit Boston in 1804. It started out as a tropical cyclone, with some meteorologists saying that it would be counted as a Category 2 hurricane based on today's scale. What made it so memorable, however, wasn't just the wind, although the wind was damaging enough, causing problems for industries representing a large sector of the early 19th century economy and wrecking buildings that are sites on the Freedom Trail today. What made the storm so memorable was the fact that it was the first known tropical cyclone to carry snow, giving it the enduring nickname, the Snow Hurricane. But before we talk about the Snow Hurricane, it's time for this week's Boston Book Club selection and our upcoming historical event. My selection for the Boston Book Club this week is a September 2018 article from the blog City Lab, titled How Boston Got Its Tea. It's an interview with designers Peter Chermayev and Tom Geismar, who, starting in 1965, designed the visual language of Boston's transit network from the ground up. Over the next five years, their agency worked out every detail of the new MBTA's visual identity, from the iconic T logo to the colors of the subway lines, to cleaning up and modernizing stations. Here's a quick excerpt where they explain a couple of these decisions. We wanted to establish the identity of the system and flag it in the streetscape. People had an affinity for the song Charlie on the MTA, and the name change to the MBTA was too long. Our core team started thinking about different ways to make something work and eventually came up with the simple T. It made sense as a name and image that would apply and be understandable at a distance or in conversation. It connects with all the words associated with the service, transit, transportation, tunnel, tube, and so on. It made all the sense in the world to go with T and have it displayed in a lollipop logo on trains, buildings, and streets. Tom worked the logo out in great detail. We were unflinching in our recognition that this was not a truly original idea. Stockholm already had a black T in a white circle for the tunnel bond. It wasn't necessary for us to be original, just to be right. The lines themselves lacked identity, so we thought that color-coding them would make a huge difference. We applied the same process to all four lines. They'd been identified by Terminus, but most of those names were unclear to non-locals. I remember sitting in my Cambridge office preparing for a meeting with the MBTA in which I would be proposing colored lines. I had markers in front of me, and I chose red for the line that went to Harvard, since it's a well-known institution whose main color is crimson. One line went up the north shore of Boston up to the coastal area, so it seemed obvious to call that the blue line. The line that serves Olmsted's emerald necklace was an obvious choice for green. And then the fourth line ended up being orange for no particular reason beyond color balance. This was, of course, 20 years before the silver line was added. That allowed us to give lines understood names. Instead of Harvard Ashmont, no one visiting Boston knows what Ashmont is, now you have the red line. The presence of color reinforces that identity to help people find their way around. You can read the entire interview to learn how Arlington Street served as a model for an upgraded modern station, how the team created our iconic T-System map, or where the designers think their vision was implemented poorly. You can find a link to the article in this week's show notes. And for our upcoming event this week, we have a brown bag lunch at noon on October 16th at the Mass Historical Society titled The Last and Living Words of Mark, following the clues to an enslaved man's life, 
Afterlife, and to his community in Boston, Charlestown, and the South Shore. The main subject of the talk, Mark, was actually a supporting character in one of the most depressing shows we've ever researched. Way back in episode 27, we reviewed the two cases of execution by fire in the history of Massachusetts. They both involved enslaved women who were accused of crimes against their enslavers, and both involved male co-defendants who were hanged instead of being burned at the stake like the women. A woman named Mariah, who was enslaved in the household of Joshua Lamb of Roxbury, allegedly set fire to the Lamb house and a neighboring house in July of 1681. While she was awaiting trial, a man named Jack, who had escaped from his enslavers in Western Mass, was also accused of an unrelated arson. The two defendants were tried at the same court of assistance in Boston with Governor Simon Bradstreet presiding, and they were sentenced to death for the capital crime of arson. Samuel Sewell's diary records that they were both executed on September 22, 1681. According to the sentence of the court, Mariah was burned to death while Jack was hanged. When Jack was dead, in accordance with the sentence, his body was then taken down and burnt to ashes in the fire with Mariah. Not quite 75 years later, during the administration of Governor William Shirley, a woman named Phyllis suffered a similar fate. In July of 1755, a Charlestown resident named John Codman died. After an inquest named arsenic poisoning as the cause of death, suspicion fell on the African Americans who were enslaved by Codman. Under questioning, a man named Mark admitted to leading a conspiracy to poison Codman with arsenic in a substance called black lead. He had acquired the poisons from neighbors who were enslaved by doctors, and then Codman's enslaved cooks, Phoebe and Phyllis, slipped the materials into Codman's food. At trial, Phoebe turned state's witness, while Phyllis and Mark were convicted of the crime of petty treason, rising up against their legal owners. For her cooperation, Phoebe was shipped to a sugar plantation in the Caribbean, where life for enslaved laborers was brutal and short. Mark was sentenced to be hanged, and Phyllis was sentenced to be burned to death. Both sentences were carried out on September 18, 1755, as the Boston Post reported. Thursday last in the afternoon, Mark, a Negro man, and Phyllis, a Negro woman, both servants to the late Captain John Cobman of Charlestown, were executed at Cambridge for poisoning their said master, as mentioned in this paper some weeks ago. The fellow was hanged, and the woman burned at a stake about ten yards distant from the gallows. They both confessed themselves guilty of the crime for which they suffered, acknowledged the justice of their sentence, and died very penitent. After execution, the body of Mark was brought down to Charlestown Common and hanged in chains on a gibbet erected there for that purpose. Our earlier episode focused on the terrible fate of Phyllis and barely mentioned Mark. After Mark was dead, his body was prepared for public display on Charlestown Common. It would remain there for decades, becoming a well-known public landmark. Historian Josiah Bartlett recorded how a surgeon on his way to join a regiment for service in the French and Indian War in 1758 stopped and examined Mark's body. He wrote in his diary, His skin was but very little broken, although he had hung there near three or four years. There's no exact record of when Mark's body was cut down or decomposed, but it remained a landmark when Paul Revere embarked on his famous ride 20 years later. In a 1798 letter to Jeremy Belknap, the minister and founder of the Mass Historical Society, Revere described the beginning of his ride to Lexington. 
I set off upon a very good horse. It was then about eleven o'clock and very pleasant. After I had passed Charlestown Neck and got nearly opposite where Mark was hung in chains, I saw two men on horseback under a tree. Mark's life and death is often seen as a footnote to Paul Revere's famous ride. And even in our previous podcast, he was a footnote to the execution of Phyllis by fire. The lunchtime talk by independent researcher Catherine Sassanoff at the MHS on October 16th will attempt to restore Mark's humanity, putting him back in the center of his own story. Here's how the MHS website describes the event. Mark, a blacksmith, husband, and father, might have slipped from public memory if not for his brutal end. His body gibbeted for decades on Charlestown Common for the poisoning of his enslaver, John Codman. This project, grounded in Mark's testimony, approaches legal and other documents as crime scenes. Attention to clues, connections, and seemingly insignificant details unlock important, previously unrecognized aspects of Mark's world, thwarting their original intent, the enforcement of slavery status quo. The talk is free and open to the public. Just pack a lunch to enjoy while Sassanoff is speaking. We'll have a link to all the information you need in this week's show notes at hubhistory.com slash 153. Before moving on with the show, I just want to take one moment to thank everyone who supports Hub History on Patreon. Every week, Nikki and I invest a significant amount of time into digging up sources and interesting quotes about a historic topic, assembling a hopefully interesting script, and then recording and editing a show for your enjoyment. Along with the time it takes to make each episode, it also takes money to keep the podcast running. Even before the improvements we'd like to make, we have to cover the basics, like web hosting and security, podcast feed and media hosting, and the online processing tools that help make us sound this buttery smooth. Supporting us on Patreon helps us offset these costs. If you'd like to help make Hub History, just go to patreon.com slash hubhistory or visit hubhistory.com and click on the support us link. Thanks again to all our new and existing sponsors. And now it's time for this week's main topic. 215 years ago this week, a broadside or handbill was sold on the streets of Boston for four cents. Several versions of the document survive. They all carry the headline, Violent Storm. They all have different poems inspired by the storm. They all have a border of tiny woodcut coffins around the text. One version of the broadside announces... On Tuesday last, a violent storm commenced here and raged till Wednesday morning with unprecedented fury and destruction. The damage which has been sustained by this tremendous hurricane is very great and extensive. In short, it spread horror and devastation throughout the whole town. Ships at sea from Newport to Portland were devastated by the hurricane that made landfall in Boston on October 9, 1804. In an era before Doppler radar or weather satellites or even telegraph communication, sea captains had no way to tell that a storm was approaching until they saw the clouds or felt the wind. Reports came in of dozens of vessels wrecked on the shore or blown out to sea and lost. In Salem, there are about 16 shipwrecks, another 33 at Marblehead, 10 at Cohasset, and dozens more along the Cape and Islands. Records aren't very exact, but it's likely that the death toll from ships lost at sea or wrecked on the coast reached into the hundreds. Closer to home, wreckage and bodies washed up on the shore of Pettix Island in Boston Harbor, while ships were wrecked on Castle Island and Slate Island. 
The handbill says that on Boston's waterfront, about 35 vessels of different kinds were injured at the wharves and four entirely lost. In all, between 9 and 12 people were killed by the storm in Boston. In his book, Historic Storms of New England, Sidney Purley says, At Boston, many vessels in the harbor were damaged by being forced by the wind violently against the wharves. The Laura, belonging in Gloucester and commanded by Captain Griffin, was nearly beaten to pieces at Long Wharf, and her cargo was very much damaged. Many of the small craft were so blown about and strained that they bilged and sank, several of them being staved to pieces. Some of the larger vessels also bilged, and several had bowsprits, sterns, and other sections broken. Cargoes were also damaged. Several men were drowned there during the gale, two men being cast into the water from a boat that upset at May's Wharf and drowned before they could be rescued. An article in the Boston Sentinel adds, A sloop belonging to Mr. Franks sunk in Fort Point Channel. A lad by the name of Smith, who had been attempting to keep her free of water, finding the vessel sinking, clung to a plank, from which he was soon after washed off and drowned. Several boats went off and attempted to save him, but their exertions were fruitless. Sidney Purley says that the storm began at about 9 in the morning on Tuesday, October 9th. The temperature dropped suddenly and a violent wind began. Heavy rain began falling in Boston with occasional snow flurries mixed in, accompanied by thunder and lightning. Jim Cantor would have loved it. We don't have an accurate rainfall total for Boston, but in nearby Salem, seven inches of rain were recorded in about 18 hours. The Sentinel characterized it as a tremendous storm and described a change in the wind direction that seems characteristic of a tropical cyclone, like a hurricane or tropical storm. The wind blew at first from south-southeast, then shifted to east, increasing in power until 4 o'clock when it abated for a few moments, and then veered to northeast. From this quarter, the gale blew with a violence and fury unprecedented in the annals of the town. Purley says that people sat up all night that Tuesday night, fearing to retire lest their houses would blow down. Sometime after midnight, the wind began to taper off, but as the temperature began to drop, the rain changed to snow. Snow fell all day on Wednesday and continued until Thursday morning. In the Boston area, about six inches accumulated. In the Berkshires, they got about 15 inches. Here in Massachusetts, the snow melted within just a few days. But up in New Hampshire, where over two feet of wet, heavy snow had fallen, it was cold enough that it stayed until spring. It was the worst storm in living memory. The 1635 hurricane, the worst in recorded New England history, hit Boston with stronger winds and a higher storm surge, but no snow. The Great Snow of 1717 dumped more snow on Boston, but it came later in the season and without hurricane-force winds. Pearly comments, It was the earliest snowstorm that the people of eastern Massachusetts has experienced for 50 years and the oldest inhabitant did not remember so violent a storm occurring there before. It did not reach far either north or south, but was felt inland beyond the limits of New England. Along the same lines, Reverend William Bentley of Salem wrote, I cannot refuse to adopt the belief that the late storm was the most severe ever felt in this part of America. All the accounts which I have seen represent nothing like it. In Boston, the old people are said to represent that a storm like it happened on September 16, 1727. 
As yet, I've found no tradition of such a storm among our old people, or upon record or any report of its consequences. I suspect as our winters have less horror, we partake more of a southern climate from the great quantity of heat, and consequently have more stormy weather of this kind, and therefore may expect more of it in future years. I can find no history of wharves, ships, trees, houses, fences, outhouses, which lead to suspect great calamities from high winds. Since 1804, there have been a handful of comparable storms. Hurricane Jenny in 1963 was the only other tropical cyclone to result in snowfall in New England. It was another late-season hurricane making landfall in Nova Scotia on October 29th. Like in 1804, Jenny brought the season's first snowfall in Massachusetts and across most of New England. Perhaps the closest modern parallel to the 1804 snow hurricane was Hurricane Sandy in 2012. Though it had weakened to an extratropical storm by the time it reached Massachusetts on October 29th, it had been a Category 2 hurricane when it hit New York and New Jersey. Like the storm in 1804, Sandy brought widespread snowfall coupled with high winds. Most of these effects missed New England, but in the Mid-Atlantic and Appalachian states, entire forests were decimated, and residents woke up to a changed and unfamiliar landscape. Unlike the 1804 storm, these modern hurricanes had surprisingly low death tolls. Jenny killed three people, and two of those were on remote Mount Katahdin in Maine, and one who suffered a heart attack while trying to keep his boat from drifting away. In the U.S., 160 deaths are attributed to Sandy across 24 states that were affected, from everything from drowning to being hit by a falling tree. Thanks to modern weather forecasting, there weren't nearly as many shipwrecks and maritime deaths in 2012 as there were in 1804. Off the North Carolina coast, however, the Coast Guard received a distress call that turned out to be eerily reminiscent of 1804. A 180-foot-long, three-masted, full-rigged wooden sailing ship had no power, couldn't raise the sails, and was taking on water. At the same time, it was being buffeted by the hurricane winds and waves. The vessel was the HMS Bounty, a replica of the Royal Navy ship that's mostly famous for a 1789 mutiny that was built for a 1960 movie. The crew had been making an ill-advised attempt to outrun the storm, and they failed. When the ship capsized, Coast Guard helicopter crews launched a massive, heroic, pre-dawn rescue mission, saving 14 of the 16 crew members. A YouTube video that we'll include in the show notes reveals a surreal and chaotic scene, where the first pilot to make contact with the bounty reported, I see a giant pirate ship in the middle of a hurricane. Rescue divers operating out of Jayhawk helicopters hovering above the waves collected survivors from the life rafts of what appeared to be a three-century-old shipwreck. Unfortunately, there were no helicopter rescues off the Massachusetts coast in 1804. The many shipwrecks and fatalities weren't the only problem for the shipping business caused by the 1804 storm. The high winds and heavy snow load caused extensive damage to forests around New England. Sidney Purley describes how such great sections of the woods were leveled that new landscapes and prospects were brought into view to the surprise of many people. Houses and other buildings and hills that could not be seen before from certain places were now plainly visible. The change was so great in some localities that the surroundings seemed to have become entirely different, and people felt as if they were in a strange place. 
He draws a connection between the 1804 storm, another strong storm in September 1815, right when forests would have been recovering, and the decline of the shipbuilding industry in the Commonwealth. The gale was very injurious to the pine and oak timber trees of the forests, destroying the larger portion of the best oaks that were useful in shipbuilding. It has been said that so many of the great oaks were destroyed that the building of vessels declined in Massachusetts, and that the great gale of 1815 brought about its entire abandonment in several places. Along with the damage to the wharves, to shipping, and to shipbuilding, two other industries were affected by the storm. Hurley notes that at brickmakers' yards in Danvers and Charlestown, tens of thousands of unfired bricks were ruined. On land, though, agriculture was the hardest-hit industry, with an entire season's worth of crops and livestock lost in some places. Pearly describes the devastation farmers faced. The effect of the storm on apples and potatoes was very disastrous. The fruit was blown from the trees, and in the northern sections, large quantities of potatoes that remained undug were frozen into the ground where they were left until the next spring, being harvested after the frost was out. The storm also caused the death of large numbers of cattle and sheep, and fowls of all kinds, especially around Walpole and at Newbury and Topsfield. From Newbury, Massachusetts, the Newburyport Herald reported on the death toll among livestock. The tempest was experienced with equal severity by the farmer in the fields as by the merchant in his shipping in this vicinity, though not so fatal to human lives in the former. Fences, stacks of hay, and even buildings were demolished. And what is still more surprising, in an autumnal storm, we've been credibly informed that in a small compass, 30 head of cattle perished. And it was the opinion of our informant that in the town, 100 head must have met the same fate. Here in Boston, however, the 1804 snow hurricane isn't remembered primarily for its impact on the brickmaking business, or the shipbuilding industry, or even farming and husbandry. It's remembered more for the severe damage it caused to buildings and landmarks and people. The Sentinel reports that the damage sustained in the interior of the town has been considerable. Scarcely a tree, particularly the poplars, which ornamented every yard and garden, is standing. Many of the houses are unroofed, and some of the new buildings are so much bent and twisted that if they do not follow themselves, they must be taken down. Among these is one belonging to Mr. Jonathan Loring at West Boston, and another to Jonathan Mason. The kitchen part of the house, now occupied by Mr. Chipotin in Summer Street, was unroofed, the chimney blown down, and much damage done to his furniture. In addition, that broadside reports that Boston's rope walks, where rope was manufactured, were completely destroyed by the wind, and the newly rebuilt First Church in Roxbury was greatly injured. The Sentinel continues, In Charlestown, considerable damage has been sustained by the late storm. The Baptist Meeting House is partly unroofed, and the spire of Reverend Dr. Morse's Meeting House is very much bent. But being newly and strongly built, the steeple stood the gale. The new brick building in the U.S. Navy Yard is so far injured that it must be taken down if it does not fall down of itself. A large dwelling house belonging to Mr. John Hardis and another to Mr. Bolton are blown down. As the storm blew, a stagecoach, fully loaded with passengers and baggage, was on its way out of town through West Boston, just passing the site of today's Longfellow Bridge. The 1804 broadside proclaims, One of the western stages in passing West Boston Bridge was upset by the force of the wind, and several of the passengers were considerably hurt. 
Speaking of West Boston, the Boston Sentinel reports on what I believe to be the only fatality on land in Boston due to the storm. A large and new brick dwelling house at West Boston belonging to Mr. Ebenezer Eaton has been greatly injured and must, it is expected, be taken down. In stating this particular, we have to lament an occurrence which proved fatal to one of his family and had well-nigh affected the whole in a similar manner. Mr. Eaton lived in an adjoining house and was unconscious of the danger that hung over him. Mr. Jonathan Loring, who resided in the neighborhood, apprised him of the insecurity of his family while the gale continued, and after repeated and urgent entreaties prevailed on him to remove his wife and children. In a few moments after, the battlements of the new house blew over and fell, with a large part of the upper story directly upon the building which they had just left. In the house was a servant woman by the name of Bennett, killed, and another woman with a man and boy, badly wounded. The broadside names the dead woman as Lydia Bennett. In addition to that tragic occurrence, two famous Freedom Trail sites were badly damaged in the storm. First, as Sidney Purley put it, the roof was torn from the Tower of King's Chapel and conveyed 200 feet. Given how many strong storms the roof stood up to during any given winter, that's a real testament to the strength of the winds. The second famous site to incur damage is alluded to in the poem attached to one version of the broadside. On Tuesday last, a storm did rise, and thunders roaring in the skies. The gale increased from morn till night, and many people did affright. The dreadful roar, the falling trees, the turrets tumbling, and chimneys. Even buildings, too, were hurled down, and lofty spires thrown to the ground. The most famous spire that was thrown to the ground was that atop Old North Church. The tower where church sexton Robert Newman hung two lanterns to tell Joseph Warren's spy network that the British were headed to Concord by sea, or, more accurately, by rowing across the Charles River, was completely demolished by the lashing wind. The Boston Sentinel describes how it collapsed directly onto a nearby home. The North Church steeple, which experienced the power of the gale on Tuesday night, fell on an adjoining house and crushed it to pieces. The family who rented the house were all of them fortunately on a visit at the time, or they must have perished amid the ruins. A 2015 blog post from Old North Church clarifies that it was just the upper, wooden structure that collapsed. Quote, The rest of the church was unscathed, and both the bells and bell tower were intact. The bell tower and the bells at houses are below the steeple, and that part of the structure has brick walls three feet thick. The steeple was reconstructed after the storm, but the replacement was built several feet shorter. The architects assumed that a shorter steeple would better weather any future Boston hurricanes. A century and a half later, that assumption turned out to be incorrect. That blog post from Old North goes on to describe what happened. In 1954, the steeple of the Old North Church blew down for the second time. In 1954, the culprit was Hurricane Carol. During that storm, the steeple could actually be seen swaying to and fro, but it took long enough to fall that the city was able to evacuate the neighborhood and convince most residents to move their cars out of the immediate area. While Lady Luck had deserted us when it came to keeping the building in one piece, she was on our side when the steeple fell directly into the middle of Hull Street, straight in front of the building. Remarkably, the only damage done when the steeple fell in 1954, aside to the steeple itself not being where it belonged, 
was to the very corner of the building across from us. On the very top corner of the building, there is a chip about the size of a fist. In another remarkable piece of luck, our original weather vane, designed by Shem Drown, has survived not one, but two steeple falls. After Carol, the steeple was reconstructed again, but this time the new steeple was modeled on the original 1740 structure, not the smaller replacement. Instead of being entirely wooden, the new model incorporates a strong steel frame. The church officials hope we'll see it safely through the next major nor'easter, blizzard, or snow hurricane. To learn more about the 1804 snow hurricane, check out this week's show notes at hubhistory.com slash 153. We'll have links to William Bentley's diary and Sidney Purley's book about New England weather. We'll have pictures of the original steeple of Old North Church, the 1805 replacement, and a photo montage of the replacement collapsing during Hurricane Carol. We'll also include two versions of the broadside about the violent storm. And, of course, we'll have links to information about our upcoming event and how Boston got its tea, this week's Boston Book Club pick. Before we go, I just want to share a few pieces of listener feedback we got on episode 149, which was about Boston's history of rock and roll riots. A listener who goes by Quick Seed on Twitter forwarded a link to an L.A. Times story about a 1989 New Kids on the Block concert at Boston's World Trade Center that had to be shut down in the first 30 seconds when fans tried to rush the stage. They said, My personal Boston music riot experience. Big hair, screaming girls. My response was to ask if NKOTB actually count as rock, and a listener named Alice chimed in, They won awards for pop rock, and I'm not talking about the candy, so maybe. Sorry, Alice, you're dead wrong. They were pop, but they can't possibly be called rock. You know who could be classified as rock? The classic Boston punk band, The Trouble. Matt L. sent a picture of a show flyer featuring The Trouble and Showcase Showdown, saying, I collected flyers for shows I played back in the 90s and still have this one featuring The Trouble at the Greek American from a few months before the last show. They were totally legendary. Now that's a sentiment I can get behind. Liam S. tweeted as he listened to the episode, saying, in a rock and roll coincidence, my Orange Line train stopped by Matthews Arena just as I was listening to Jake talk about the Alan Freed riot. I didn't hear about any beatings or stabbings on the tee, so I'm guessing that the former Boston Arena was calmer for Liam than it was after that 1958 show featuring Chuck Berry. We love getting your feedback, whether you loved the episode or just liked it a lot. If you want to leave us feedback of any kind, you can email us at podcast at hubhistory.com. If you want to hear your voice on the show, call our voicemail line at 617-383-9255. We'd love to get audio feedback to share on a future show. We are Hub History on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram, or just go to hubhistory.com and click on the Contact Us link. While you're on the site, hit the subscribe link and be sure that you never miss an episode. If you subscribe on Apple Podcasts, please consider rating and reviewing the show, or just tell a friend about us. Word of mouth is the best way for new listeners to find us. That's all for now. We'll be back next week to talk about black politics and partisanship in late 19th century Boston with Dr. Millington Ferguson Lockwood. 